So, happy Halloween. Tonight, instead of the usual kind of Dharma talk, I thought I would share with you some of the ups and downs of my own spiritual journey. And hopefully, it might be of some help to you in your own unfolding practice, because so much of what's experienced even though it's conditioned very personally by our own circumstances, so much of what we experience is in common. And as you know, in many spiritual traditions, it's some awareness of suffering that often prompts at least the initial looking and investigation and wondering, how can I understand this life? Well, for me, this happened quite young. In growing up as kind of a young boy, I would have these intermittent and quite uncontrollable temper tantrums. You know, something would provoke it, and then, kind of an explosion of temper. And it made me and everyone around me quite miserable. Not a very pleasant situation. But I didn't know what to do about it. And then when I was about 11, I had my first, what I consider my first real insight into the workings of the mind, you know, in a very, in a very childlike way, but profound in its own way. And I realized just after one of these big outbursts, you know, of anger and temper and screaming. Just after one of these outbursts, I looked into my mind and I realized that there was the possibility of a space between the impulse to the temper outburst and the action. You know, that I saw that in that space there was a choice. So that was kind of amazing to me, to see that I actually could have some control over what seemed so uncontrollable. And again, in a very kind of young and naive way, I did the very, uh, in some way, ordinary practice you know, of what we're often told with temper. Okay, count to ten. You know, count to ten before you say anything. And that's just what I started doing. You know, I would count to ten. And the impulse for the outburst would pass. And it was quite amazing. It was a real transformation, you know, in that particular context. And then when I was 12, uh, my father died quite suddenly, within kind of a two-month period. He got sick, and then he died. Uh, He had leukemia. And even though it took me quite a long time to process it emotionally, because in those years, at least in my family background, death really wasn't a topic of conversation. You know, it wasn't talked about. And so I was just, you know, being a 12-year-old, holding the various emotions but not really understanding them. Even though it took me a long time to process emotionally, kind of the understanding, a rather profound understanding of death, of, you know, somebody's there, and then they're not there. And just what that experience is like, and the very immediate realization that it can happen any time. You know, it's not just some time in the future. So then I finished finished high school, went on to college. I started studying philosophy in college because I was still kind of interested in trying to understand life. But studying philosophy with that end uh, in mind was very frustrating for me because at the university at least, 
the professors really weren't interested in philosophy as a way to live life. You know, it was just trying to understand what this guy said, what this guy said, what this guy said, with no application at all, as far as I could say, to living a life wisely. You know, that was not the tack that was taken, at least then, maybe it's changed. But I was taking one course, you know, in in my philosophy training. It was a course in Eastern philosophy. And we were reading the Bhagavad Gita. And one line in that book just jumped out at me in a way that I really didn't understand. I didn't understand why, but something resonated very deeply. And the line was, act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Act without attachment to the fruit of the action. This was, this was like my first introduction even to the notion of non-attachment. You know, because it's not, a, it's not a big Western value. And so this was really the first, the first notion, you know, even coming across the idea, non-attachment. Well, that's something. And again, I didn't really have any even understanding of it or quite know what it meant, but something registered very deeply. There's something here, you know, that I want to explore. Years later, I heard the Dalai Lama express this same teaching that was in the Bhagavad Gita, act without attachment to the fruit of the action, but he expressed it in another way, which I've mentioned earlier in the retreat, but wanted to reiterate, because it's such a powerful teaching in the context of our Western culture, when he said that it's the motivation behind an action that's the real measure of it and not its success or failure. And so it's really saying the same thing. Non-attachment to the fruit of the action, what's the motive? You know, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So beginning to see that and beginning to work with that, as must be so obvious you know, we can't control the outcome because it's dependent on so many conditions, you know, in ourselves, in other people, in the world. We can't control the outcome of our actions. We can do our best, but what we can do is really purify our motivations. That's within our power. So it gives a very clear understanding of how to live our lives in a way that's of value. Then in my junior year, um, I was on the subway in New York, and this was in 1964. I met some people who were in one of the very early Peace Corps trainings. It was just starting. It was one of the very first groups. And I started talking to them on the subway, and then I invited them back to my apartment. And suddenly the idea of the Peace Corps just captivated my mind. You know, I thought, I was definitely ready for some adventure after, you know, these years of being in school and just some way to get out and see the world. So I applied. I applied to go to East Africa. But some karma intervened, and I was sent to Thailand instead. If not, we might be doing African drumming. (laughs) 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 But uh, somehow you ended up having to come here and sit quietly watching your breath. (laughs) (laughs) And it was in Thailand that I had my first introduction to Buddhism. You know, I I might have mentioned either in this retreat or many previous retreats, you know, my first introduction going to a famous temple in Thailand, in Bangkok, the Marble Temple, where some, an Indian and English monk 
were teaching a group for Westerners. And I went and I was so still in my philosophic mode that I actually went with a copy of Spinoza in my hand. He was my great hero in college. You know, I was going to debate the monks. Of course, now I remember almost nothing of what Spinoza said. (laughs) But I would be going to these groups and asking so many questions. You know, the people stopped coming. They just... uh, I'm sure you've been in groups where there's this one obnoxious person, (laughs) you know, and you just are wishing they'd shut up. (laughs) Well, that was me. (laughs) So finally, one of the monks... I think out of some desperation, said, why don't you try meditating? (laughs) And again, here I was in the East. I was very young. I was like 20 years old. You know, so it was all very exotic to me. Nobody I knew had ever meditated. I didn't know what it was about. You know, so I get all this paraphernalia together, sit down, set the alarm clock for five minutes, you know. But it was amazing. Something really important happened in the first five minutes. And it was the understanding that there's a way to look in as well as a way to look out. You know, and this is revelatory, really. When you think of how we grow up in our culture, there's very little guidance in looking in. It's all about looking out. And so to see that there was a way, that there was actually a systematic way for looking in. That was, that was really powerful. I was so excited by this, I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> they didn't come back very often. So that's when I just started to start a center. You know. <laughs> so thank you all for coming. <laughs> you know. During my second year in the Peace Corps, you know, it's a two-year volunteer time. During my second year, I was teaching English uh, at the school, but I decided to undertake the project of something I had wanted to do in college but never had the time to do it, was to read Marcel Proust's great masterpiece, you know, A Remembrance of Things Past. So this is a great, this is I don't know, 2,000 pages. or you know, It's a very long book with very long sentences in the book. <laughs> and it's all about time. You know, he had a kind, I don't know if you would call it a mystical, but transforming experience, which prompted the book of smelling uh, a madeleine, I think it's called. A fr- it's kind of a French cookie, French pastry. And th- as an adult... He was passing by a shop and he had the smell and it called back all the memories of his childhood. And so the book is an exploration of what this means. And in the last 50 pages, there's really quite a um, quite an interesting exploration about the nature of time. So I, I spent took a long time to get to the last 50 pages. But when I did, the book kind of prepares you, and especially being in Thailand, just having started looking at my mind, you know, in meditation, just in a beginning way. As he was describing his understanding of how the past is contained in the present, right? it's just what his experience was. Right? Just the aroma brought back the past into the present moment. It was like that sudden, real insight in myself of how everything that I called the past was really just a thought in the moment. Now that's how we experience the past. It's always now. It's always present. And then my mind made the leap to the future. It's like, well, if the past is just a thought in the present, really the future is the same. It's as a thought of planning or anticipating, imagining, but it's all happening right now. 
And it was such an important and freeing insight to realize that this huge burden of past and future that we carry around, I mean, just think of the time you spend here, how much of the time is about past and future? Probably a huge amount with, depending on level of insight in the moment, it's either very light, if we see it just as a thought, or very burdensome, if we give a reality to the past and future as really existing out there. And so this was, this was a very uh, freeing understanding to come to. Then at the very end of my uh, time in the Peace Corps, the very end of the two years, I was sitting in a friend's garden, and he was reading out loud from a Tibetan text. And it was an old translation, an old Evan Wentz translation, which I understand now is not a very good translation of the text, but at that time I didn't know. It was a, from a text in that translation called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And the refrain in the text, over and over again, it's saying, look into your own mind. Look at the nature of your own mind. So I was sitting and I was quite concentrated. You know, just at that particular time, I was sitting and I was listening in the text, look into your own mind, look into the nature of your own mind. And then it said, among other things, the nature of the mind is unformed, unborn. And just when it said unborn, the mind opened in some way to what that experience of unborn is, or what unborn means. And it can mean different things. You know, we can, we can understand unborn from different sides. You know, sometimes in some traditions, it talks of unborn awareness, which means that there's no beginning. You know, it's unborn in that sense. And so in that sense, outside of time. It can also mean unarisen, what's unborn is unarisen, unoriginated, non-occurrence. Okay, so just look into your own mind. You know, and when we look into our own mind, the nature of the mind is unformed, unborn. What is that reality? That is before occurrence, before arising. So something, something really opened there, a big shift. And in the moment of recognition, just after that happened, the phrase kept coming into my mind, there's no me, there's no me. You know, from the perspective of non-arising, non-occurrence. So this was extremely disorienting. And I was just sitting in my friend's garden, you know, listening to this text, and all of a sudden, like this huge seismic shift. And I was about to leave Thailand after being there for two years. You know, and so things were just very unsettled. And I didn't have any context for understanding the experience or what had happened but knowing that in some fundamental way, something had shifted. So then for a while, and all this was in the, maybe it was a week before I was actually leaving, you know, I was started getting seduced by the thought, mm, maybe I'm enlightened. You know, maybe I'm all done. There's no self. There's no me. There's no one there. But then I'd be walking down some dark, Bangkok streets at night and fear would arise. Mm, something's still here. <laughs> so that kind of illuminated 
And I slowly started to realize that this experience was not the end of the spiritual path. It was actually the beginning of the spiritual path. That experiences like this, you know, and people have different kinds and different levels of intensity and different levels of transformation, but all kinds of openings like this really are intimations of possibilities. You know, and they represent or they are the transforming experience of what's possible. Not some final accomplishment. So just in that line, because I think it's such an important point on our spiritual journeys, because at different times in our practice, we may have real transforming moments you know, of understanding, where something radically shifts, it's important to see it in the correct way. So this is from uh, I think it was 11th century Korean Zen master. His name was Shinul. And he was in one way one of the founders of Korean Zen. And he has a whole teaching, the framework of his teaching is called Sudden Awakening, Gradual Cultivation. And there's some wonderful uh, books of his teaching, and I very much appreciate that framework because it acknowledges the power of those moments of sudden awakening and also reminds us that it needs a gradual cultivation. It's not the end of the path. So this is what he says. Although coming into this life, we may suddenly awaken to the fact that our self-nature is originally void and calm and no different from that of the Buddhas. Old habits are difficult to eliminate completely. Consequently, when we come into contact with either favorable or adverse objects, then anger and happiness blaze forth. Adventitious defilements are no different from before. Nevertheless, although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind nature is originally pure. So I find that a very good framework for understanding that we can have transforming insights into the empty nature of phenomena and still appreciate the fact there's a lot more work to do. So I came back from the Peace Corps, came back to the States, and of course, profoundly moved by what had happened. And, of course, I tried to repeat the experience. And so... I would ask people to read the text to me again. <laughs> you know, and I would sit and I'll look into your own mind, okay, unborn, unformed, and I'd be waiting. <laughs> uh, clearly, that was not the, the right approach. So I saw that, that so I think I need a teacher. <laughs> you know, and so became motivated to go back to Asia to look for a teacher and you know, really find a meditation practice that both expressed and deepened this understanding. So I went to India, first thinking I'd go back to Thailand, but stopping in India on the way. And I ended up, after a lot of searching around, in Bodh Gaya, which is, of course, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. A very special place, and at that time, this was in 1967, there were very few Westerners there. There were just a handful, four or five, um, staying at this place called the Burmese Vihara. I met some people there, some Westerners, and they were studying with this teacher uh, named Munindraji. They took me to, to meet him and began practicing um, with him. 
When I first met him, and even as I got to know him very well over many years, he did not fit my idea of a guru at all. He was this very speedy little guy running around the bazaar. <laughs> he just didn't have what I thought was the gravitas you know, of some great enlightened being. And of course, this was a great teaching in itself you know, to cut through attachments I had to, to concepts of how wisdom should manifest. I mean, one of his teachings that has remained in my mind, one time he was in the bazaar in Bhagaya, and he was just haggling, you know, and bargaining for a little bag of peanuts, yeah. which, of course, you know, that's kind of customary in India. But, you know, I was there studying to be enlightened. He was my teacher. And I said, Manindraji, what are you doing? You know, what are you bargaining over five cents worth of peanuts? And he said, the path of the Dharma is to be simple, not to be a simpleton. (laughs) And he went right on bargaining. (laughs) He was so engaged with the world. He was so interested in everything. He was incredibly open-minded. You know, over those years, as more Westerners would come and you know, be interested in studying with different teachers and different traditions, he always encouraged people to explore whatever they wanted to explore. And one of the lines that I remember, you know, his saying, which certainly rings true, he said, go, explore, because the Dharma doesn't suffer in comparison to anything. You know, the Dharma and his faith in the Dharma and the confidence and the appreciation of the teachings was so complete. And that was a beautiful that was a beautiful teaching because it inculcated that sense of openness. We don't have to hold on to our practice with fear, you know, or trying to be protective. There can be a very open hearted sense of exploration of the world of our lives. The practice is so simple, as I hope you are getting a sense of by now. It's simply to be aware of what's arising and not to cling to it. Has anybody not gotten that? I mean, what could be simpler? Be aware of what's arising and don't cling. One of the things I very much appreciated about my, that first introduction with Munindraji is that there was no form, there was nothing to join. All he said when I came was, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. It just, it seems so simple and so common sense. How else can we understand our minds except by looking in, except by observing them? So I moved into the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya and I spent a good part of the next seven years there. Now in the Vasudhi Maga, which is the path of purification, you know, it's a great commentary, or a very classical commentary. It lists all the attributes of a conducive place to meditate. The Burmese Vihar had none of them. (laughs) It was right on the main road between Gaya and Bodh Gaya, and so trucks and buses would be going by all the time. Directly across from it was a public water tap, and so people would be coming there to wash, to do their laundry, to talk. Surrounded by small Indian villages, which, as many of you have been in Asia know, often are playing over loudspeakers, you know, music and... So all of this was going on. 
in India, they have rope beds. You know, it's kind of a wooden frame and then kind of a weaving of rope. And they're actually quite comfortable, except that the bed was about five feet long. <laughs> so that was a little problematic, you know, over the hard wooden end of it. And the first year, I was so naive in the ways of India, I didn't even know about mosquito nets. So, of course, there are a lot of mosquitoes. So I'm sleeping on this five-foot-long rope bed, no mosquitoes, kind of wrapped up in towels and stuff. The food was really poor, really poor. But with all of this, with all of these conditions, which were exactly opposite to what makes for a conducive place to practice, I felt such immense gratitude for having a place to practice, for being in a place that honored practice. It felt like this, it felt like a deva world to me, you know, just because of that. You know, in the midst of the craziness of the world, here was a situation where people were honoring this journey of looking inward, of just sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Now, as I began my practice, concentration did not come easily at all. I'm not one of those people, there are a few, there aren't many, but there are some, you know, who sit down and just due to past parami, their minds settle into easy and deep concentration. I was not like that. My mind basically wandered the whole time. You know, I would just be sitting and thinking. And it was kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was enjoying my thoughts. <laughs> and the hour went quickly. <laughs> You know, I go, oh, that was kind of a nice sitting. It took a long time, you know, for the mind to begin to quiet down. Also, I was not at all used to sitting cross-legged, so it was incredibly painful. I couldn't, basically. I couldn't sit cross-legged more than five minutes. You know, the pain was just too intense. So I sat in a chair. But I'm pretty tall. So most chairs are not that comfortable anyway. So I put the chair on bricks. You know, so I put each leg under, on four bricks. I had this big, it was kind of a big wicker chair on the bricks. And then I put cushions on the chair. And then I put my mosquito net. <laughs> so I was like sitting in this great throne. <laughs> you know, kind of, pers- kind of combination throne and shoeshine box. <laughs> That's what it looked like. And it was a little embarrassing when Munindraji would come in. <laughs> But it worked. It worked. So it reinforced my very pragmatic approach to practice. You know, the posture really doesn't matter if we have that interest and commitment to be sitting in some posture where we can sit pretty still and observe and look. When I left Bodh Gaya for the first time, the, the very first time I was just there for six weeks, and I had to come back to the States, and then came back, went back to India a few months later, Munindra said something which Patricia mentioned the other night, and I wanted to reiterate, because even though at the time, when I was pulling away in the rickshaw, Munindra said this, I did not, it sounded a bit like a cl- cliché to me, Over the years, I have so come to appreciate the depth of meaning. And Patricia mentioned this. He said, as I was pulling away, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. So I think we really want to let that in because it has such powerful implications for how we live our lives. The Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. It doesn't mean that unpleasant things don't happen in our lives. Of course they're going to happen. What it does mean, 
as we protect the Dharma, it protects us from excessive greed, excessive hatred, excessive delusion, excessive fear, right? Because we know how to see it. We know how to recognize. We know how to work with it. We know to some extent what renunciation means, what letting go means. The Dharma protects those that protect the Dharma. So I spent most of those seven years, most of them in India, but coming back and forth several times to the States, mostly to work, to make some money, to go back. And the first few times of coming back were very difficult, that transition time. You know, and some of you are going into a transition time now. For me, coming back from India, not only was it a transition from intensive practice to more engagement in the world, it was also the transition from the simplicity of India to being in America. You know, that in some way was even harder. And so basically what I did those first time or two, I just sit around listening to Bob Dylan, doing other things one did in the 60s, (laughs) feeling depressed. (laughs) But then I go back to India and I get all energized by my practice again. And then sometime I have to come back. What was interesting is that after doing that for a few times, back and forth, the transitions became much easier. And I really began to see and understand those times of change as being as much of the practice as being an intensive retreat. It's just another form. Other things are happening. So it's really important, especially for those of you who will be leaving, to understand that the retreat does not end. It never ends. Sorry. (laughs) The Dharma is our life, you know, and it doesn't make sense to be committed to awakening on retreat and somehow to let that go when you leave retreat. I mean, what's that about? And so it's really to see all these times of transition and change and change of form and activity are as fruitful for Dharma practice as this is beneficial. So it's really important to see it and hold it and explore that, even if the first few times of transition are difficult, and they might well be. On one of my trips back, I saw a movie uh, called Charlie. I don't know if any of you saw it. It was based on a short story called Flowers for Algernon. And not to go into the whole story of the movie, but in it, there were a few scenes where they showed people being cruel uh, to somebody who was mentally challenged. You know, And I saw that, and again, this was in the context of this long period of intensive practice, and just the the cruelty of it somehow touched my heart in a way and seeing kind of my own potential for that. When I went back to India, I told Manindraji, I really want to do some metta practice. I really want to develop that quality of metta because seeing that cruelty was so painful. And so this was my first experience of an intensive period of metta. And it took quite a while to get into it, but after about a month or so of doing it intensively, it really was the first experience of my mind getting quite concentrated. And then with the metta, there was tremendous feelings of happiness. It was just wonderful happiness. And I thought, great, this is how my life is going to be. (laughs) Yeah, I really thought that. I thought, okay. This is it. But then, (laughs) of course, conditions changed. There was a really important lesson in this, which 
hopefully we're all learning that the nature of the spiritual path is not about hanging out, simply hanging out in blissful states. That's not what it's about. It's about opening to that, certainly, but also exploring the shadow sides of our minds, really seeing the unwholesome parts of our minds. You know, and in doing the Brahma Viharas, you may you may have noticed at times that we can be doing metta or compassion or any one of them, and very often it calls up its opposite. We're doing metta and all of a sudden there's a wave of ill will. This is the purifying process. This is not a mistake. I had a very striking example of that during this time. And this again, this was my first experience of metta practice. So I was sitting there, I was getting very concentrated and blissful. And at that time I was in a room in the Burmese Vihara. It was an inside room. Um, and there was a windowsill on the outside of the room but off a corridor. And I would sometimes leave pieces of fruit on that windowsill that was outside in the corridor. And there was a Nepali guy who was a student of Manindraji's who had come to practice during that time. And he had a little uh, kind of servant boy you know, with him. So I'm sitting there kind of really very expansive in quite a lot of bliss. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful, be free. Then I hear this little rustling outside my window. And just the thought that comes into my mind, that little Nepali kid is stealing my fruit. (laughs) May all beings be happy. (laughs) May all beings be liberated. (laughs) The contrast was so amazingly blatant. (laughs) You know, so even in the midst of all of our metta, very often it just touches the other side and we see the defilements arise. And one of the powers of doing the Brahma Viharas and having done them, you know, and then going out into the world, the power of that practice, one of them, is that it illuminates times when we're feeling its opposite. You know, when we spend so much time doing metta or compassion, and then we're in some situation in the world and there's real ill will or cruelty or whatever it may be, having done the practice, it, it shines the spotlight on it. We see so clearly you know, that unwholesome mind state in contrast to what we've practiced. And so it's a great gift. It's not that the unwholesome things are going to stop arising, at least probably for a while. They will keep arising, but we see them. And we see that there's another possibility. I'm never going to get through to the current day. I think this this talk is going to be in two parts. (laughs) So one last Manindra story, which was such a good teaching. I would be sitting there, and now I've been there you know, for quite a long time, over, over a number of years. The concentration finally had deepened. You know, the practice was going well. I'd be sitting for long hours. But Manindraji had the habit of bringing any Western traveler who came to Bodhgaya to come meet Joseph. You know, and just to chit-chat. Munindra would meet them in the bazaar while he was haggling for peanuts. You know, I was there in the Vihara doing my practice. And he would just drag all these people. Oh, come meet Joseph. You know. It got to a point where I just dreaded hearing his footsteps. This is my teacher. You know, please, <laughs> let it not be Munindraji. 
but it always was. <laughs> and he was always dragging somebody along. And so I would just have to get up from these states of really deep stillness and just get up and chat, you know. And at first I was just terribly annoyed and irritated. And of course then my practice would be terribly annoyed and irritated. But he kept doing it. I mean, he didn't stop. <laughs> so at a certain point I just had to give up. You know? And I realized something very significant. It didn't matter at all. You know, if I stopped resisting it, I was sitting in really quiet space, calm space. Somebody comes, get up, talk to them. If I'm not making a problem in my mind, fine. That happens, they leave, go back to sitting. Not an interruption at all. So that was, that was really a great lesson in how we can hold on you know, so tightly to protecting the space. And that can become its own hindrance. And it's not that we don't look for conducive surroundings. You know, it's always helpful. But can we stay open just to what comes in the course, you know, of that time? Freedom is all about our own minds. It's not about external conditions. I think we need to hear that a hundred thousand times, you know, because the tendency so often is, oh, if the conditions were different, then I could get on with my practice. It's not about that. So we learn. We just learn. Over the years, you know, this was, I first went to India, it's like 40 years ago. Over these many years, I've had the chance to study and practice with quite a few different teachers. Some in the same tradition, some in different traditions. And it gave me a great appreciation just for the incredible richness of the Dharma. You know, the Buddhist teachings are so vast and so deep and can be approached from so many different sides and angles and methodologies. And in that, we all find our own way. For some people, it makes perfect sense to find a method that works for them and to stay with it. You know, And if that's the way that works, that's great. And for other people, it may be helpful to understand different approaches. There's no right or wrong. It's just what's helpful for each one of us on our path at any particular time. I see, the, I see the Dharma as kind of this wonderfully rich mandala of understanding. You know, and all of the different traditions and teachers and methods and even qualities within a tradition that we're practicing of the Brahma-viharas, or concentration, or mindfulness, or equanimity, whatever it is, that all of these different aspects of the Dharma are just another piece of the mandala. And we have this incredible good fortune of being in a situation where so much is available to us. And so we just find our way in that and appreciate the possibilities of developing all these many sides of ourselves. To get into a sectarian attachment to a particular way, a particular method, even if it's a very good method that leads all the way to awakening, there's no need for the sectarian attachment. We can really honor and respect all the many ways of Dharma practice. So after Manindraji, and one of his, probably his greatest student, uh, was Deepama. You know, I think we've spoken over these weeks, this extraordinary woman who was a student of his in Burma and then came back to live in Calcutta. And I think in some way of all the teachers I've had, 
She was really the person who inspired me the most in terms of the potential for what a heart and mind can be. Because she had, through her extraordinary development, it was just this rare combination of the deepest and most profound stillness and the most all-embracing love. And that combination was just incredible to be in the presence of. You know, when she would give a blessing, she'd kind of run her hands over your head and shoulders and back and just, it was just like being bathed in love and wisdom and so tremendously inspiring to see that as a potential. You know, yeah, this is what the mind can become, you know, with practice, with training. She could also be pretty, one time, she had a very high bar. One time I was with her and she said, Joseph, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant sit down and get up two days later, which she had done. And I just started laughing. (laughs) I mean, it just seemed... (laughs) And she just turned to me and said, don't be lazy. (laughs) Well, I never did quite reach that level of accomplishment. (laughs) But it was, again, very inspiring to, to just see, yeah, so many things are possible through the cultivation of mind. The mind can become so powerful and so loving and so still. You know, so she was a great example. And then after some years, I also started practicing with another great teacher in India, Goenkaji. And he was teaching another form of Vipassana, this body sweeping, and a very powerful technique. It's a very concentrating technique. But he was very different than Manindraji. You know, Manindraji was completely informal. And Goenkaji is pretty formal, you know. And he's he's the first one that I knew of who actually created the form of a ten-day retreat. Uh, maybe there had been others, but this was the first time uh, that I had experienced that. And so he was very, uh, very methodical in the teaching and a very powerful presence. Beautiful, wonderful chanting, you know. And so he would chant in the hall and just kind of this amazing sense of devotion. But when I first, the first course I sat with him, he would come in and people would bow to him. And with Meningeji, people never bowed. So I said, what's this bowing? <laughs> you know, I didn't get it. And I was, my mind was pretty judgmental about what all that was about. Quite amazingly, by the end of the first 10-day retreat, I understood why people were bowing. <laughs> you know, it's, so it was a good lesson both in my own comparing judgmental mind and then really opening just to that quality, that very beautiful heart quality of devotion, of faith. And that when that's there genuinely, it's coming from the inside, not, not imposed from the outside then bowing is a beautiful expression of that quality. There's much too much left. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think I'm going to skip to the end and maybe at some point in the next half... Uh, come back to it. But I want to end with a question that somebody recently asked me. You know, after all these years in practice and teaching, 
sleep with somebody was asking me, what inspires you the most? And what brings you the most joy? When I thought about the question, I saw there were two interrelated aspects of the Dharma that highlight what I value the most and really what brings the most happiness. And one is something I mentioned earlier, understanding the possibility and the potential and the practice of purifying our motivations, of realizing that we don't have to stay lost and imprisoned in our habitual tendencies. There is a tremendous joy in seeing through the different defilements that arise in the mind. They're going to come for quite a long time. And until we're fully awakened, different defilements are going to arise. To have the understanding and the confidence that we can actually purify our motivations, we don't have to stay trapped, imprisoned by the habitual tendencies. We can see through them. We can let them go. We can recognize the empty nature of awareness. So that's the first thing that really inspires me. Every time I see a defilement in the mind and I see it clearly, in a very strange way, it makes me happy. It really makes me happy because I would much rather see it than not see it. You know, and there's that, oh, good, ill will. (laughs) Or whatever it is. The second kind of wonder of the Brahma Viharas, of the Dharma, is the growing experience that all of the Brahma Viharas of metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, the growing experience that all of them are the expression of emptiness. That the more we realize the selfless nature of experience, the more that wisdom grows, we see that love and compassion and joy and equanimity are the activity of that wisdom. We see them as the natural expression of selflessness. And so this is a great understanding of the mandala, of the dharma. They're not two different things. The more we understand selflessness, the more love and compassion become the way we engage with the world. So this is a beautiful, a beautiful unfolding in our lives. And we understand in an increasingly deep way that our practice is not for ourselves alone that we can be undertaking this practice with the motivation, right up front, with the motivation that all the effort we make, everything we do, can be with the aspiration that it be for the benefit and the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings. So I'd just like to close with a wonderful teaching of the Dalai Lama. He calls it the true meaning of life. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. So let's sit for just a few minutes.
May the merit of all our practice together be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. And may all of it together be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.